This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss uh, a very important set of issues related to the future of our environment and the ways we address or don't address climate change in our world today. We're going to talk about uh, the ideas surrounding carbon dividends uh, and the work that's been done by our guest, Jim Boyce, and many others to uh, try to help us turn the problems of carbon emissions into an opportunity for producing not only a more livable environment, but also more equity in the way resources in our society are distributed. Our guest is one of the pioneering thinkers and writers around these issues. He has devoted much of his career to these uh, matters. His name is James Boyce. Uh, He's the author uh, of numerous articles and books. He's a senior fellow at the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. His most recent books, and again, I I encourage uh, listeners to go to his website. He's uh, been prolific in writing about these issues and others. But his most recent books are The Case for Carbon Dividends, published in 2019, and Economics for People and the Planet, Inequality in the Era of Climate Change, also published in 2019. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we turn to our discussion with Jim, we have, uh, of course, Mr. Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Chasing Windmills. Let's hear it. We are driving straight into the setting sun across endless different forms of Texas. And yes, There are oil derricks with long-headed levers like extinct dinosaur heads, but mostly there are these white giants with long, steely arms. They appear like clouds rising from the ground and waving in the breeze as we charge through them across the state, chasing the windmills into New Mexico. We were born into this world like the afterthought of a sandwiched age, and we opened our eyes in hazy mystery as gas was blown, unmysterious and mundane, into the air. And we were raised in the age of uncertain floodgates, raised praying for the lives of levees, elementary school with homework and hurricanes. The ground is dry with drought, red from the iron, and there are concrete fields, electrical wires, and smoking Texas sun rays that define the landscape from whence we came, the promised land they crossed the rivers for, and the life-bursting soil of the old dry ocean and the highways of the flat expanses. Somewhere, Oil is being squeezed from rocks. Miraculous geese exude black golden eggs that blow up in dark fumes. The water is filthy, and the uneven rivers have been dammed into lakes as we stared from the shrinking walls of our nurseries into the dust storms. So here we are, Cartago de Lenda Est, and we are afraid of what will become of our magnificent ports. Here we are, Texas children of the unholy generation, with clogged interstate traffic behind us and empty roads stretching beyond the horizon in dazzling mirages, empty except for the indignant roadkill of denial, the carrion corpses of complacency. So here we are, we the people, and for the sake of posterity, all we can hope is that we are doing more than chasing windmills. I love the imagery, Zachary, especially the references to Don Quixote and the chasing of windmills. What What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about the unique position that my generation is in to address climate change and how uh, deeply uh, climate change and, and the destruction of the environment has affected us. 
Well, that's the perfect place to turn to our discussion with with Jim. Uh, Jim, why has this problem been so hard? Everyone wants uh, oxygen to breathe. Everyone wants to live in a nice environment. Why have we been so ineffective in many ways in dealing with these issues? Well, of course, you know, climate change uh, is a is a biggie. This is not like eliminating a a small pollutant that for which there are readily available substitutes. Um, fossil fuels have really powered our economy and powered our prosperity. And a clean energy transition, by which I mean replacing those old fuels uh, with new and cleaner fuels that are not going to destabilize the Earth's climate, is, is bound to be a challenge. Now, it's not a challenge that we can't surmount. Uh, we can surmount it. We've made some progress towards doing so. But um, the fact that we've got so much past uh, infrastructure locked into fossil fuel technology uh, means that there are a lot of vested interests that have tried to keep that technology going uh, as, long as, as long as they can play it out. And so efforts uh, in the United States to deal with the problem have proven difficult, partly for that reason. The other reason, I think, is that many of those efforts have not been particularly well designed in terms of addressing the very real and very understandable concerns that many Americans have with what a clean energy transition will mean for them in straight economic terms. And I'm not only talking here about fossil fuel workers, uh, who of course are an important group of people, especially uh, where you are in Texas, uh, for whom yes. it's really quite important to make sure that the transition to a clean energy uh, technology future doesn't simply toss them on the dustbin of history and leave them as collateral damage. It's important to make sure that the folks who've provided our energy in the past and often have done so at, at considerable cost to their own health and well-being, um, I'm thinking here not only of oil and gas workers, but coal miners, it's important that, that they have um, a future uh, in the clean energy economy, and we can design policies to do that. But more broadly than, than the workers in the sector, um, the important question is how it will impact uh, the public as a whole, uh, because we all consume fossil fuels. We use them in our cars. We, they generate a lot of our electricity uh, and so on. And so um, a lot of folks are understandably nervous and worried about what it will mean to be cutting back on uh, the availability and use of fossil fuels. And the legislation that was attempted uh, a decade ago when um, climate policy was really last on the agenda in Washington, was legislation that I think failed to adequately address that concern. You'll remember it, it was called cap and trade. That's what the policies were about. And the, yes. the idea yes. was that you'd put a cap on carbon emissions, uh, give away permits uh, to firms, that bring carbon into the economy and allow them to trade permits among themselves. And uh, the price of carbon would go up as the, the cap on the amount allowed uh, would go down, would tighten. Uh, and 
in response to rising prices of fossil fuels that would be the inevitable result of that tightening cap, uh, businesses and individuals, local governments, everyone would have an incentive to use less fossil fuel and to invest more in energy efficiency and alternative clean energies. And while the basic notion of a cap is one that I think is uh, quite uh, sensible, Um, It's really uh, critical if we're going to wean ourselves off fossil fuels to commit to a trajectory that reduces our use uh, by something on the order of, let's say, 7 or 8% per year, year after year for the 30 years or so it takes to complete the clean energy transition. And if we do that, the prices are going to go up of fossil fuels. But what needs to be done is to figure out a way to make sure that those rising prices don't harm uh, working American families. It doesn't leave people worse off than they already are. And that's where carbon dividends come in as a way to, uh, in effect, solve that very deep economic and political problem of how, on the one hand, you ratchet down the amount of carbon coming into your economy, thereby raising prices of fossil fuels, and on the other hand, You make sure that um, the working uh, families of the country, the vast majority of people, are no worse off economically in the face of those rising prices, and in fact, uh, in many cases, better off. And that's what carbon dividends promise to do. Perfect. Uh, And Jim, as I understand it, you're coming at this as an economist, and your your view is how to deal with the distribution issue, which you see as standing in the way of making some of the hard changes in our behavior patterns that are important, right? And carbon dividends is an effort to provide incentives and to lessen the pain for many that would come with altering behavior. Is that, is that correct? Um, that's certainly a, a big part of it, Jeremy. I would say that um, putting a cap on the amount of carbon we allow into the country is one of the ways to to address the clean energy transition. It's not the only one. Uh, there's scope, I think, for public investment and for um, smart regulations. Not all regulations are smart, but for smart ones, um, like fuel economy standards for automobiles, I would say. Um, and there's scope for individuals to, to do the right thing and change their behavior. All these things can help. But I think the only way we can guarantee that we're going to um, reach the goals of cutting emissions to the extent we need to do in order to meet uh, the objectives of holding the increase in global temperatures to one and a half or two degrees Celsius uh in, in total, is to uh, actually commit ourselves to that trajectory by saying this is the amount of fossil carbon we're going to allow into the United States, and we're going to reduce it uh, on a steady basis year by year um, and, uh, and issue permits to bring that stuff into the economy um, and sell those permits and uh, take the money and recycle it back to the American public. Um, The reason to recycle it back to the public, uh, well, there are really a couple reasons. One of them is a political reason, which is simply that um, in order to uh, safeguard 
uh, working families from the effect of rising fossil fuel prices, the money uh, needs to go back to them uh, in a direct and transparent way. This doesn't, of course, diminish anyone's incentive to cut their use of fossil fuels because the amount of money they get back doesn't depend on how much they as individuals use, uh, it's the money that comes from selling the amount of permits that are available in the society as a whole. Uh, in fact, the tighter the cap gets, the higher the prices rise, and the more money in the pot for redistributing uh, to the public uh, as dividends. So that's that's the political reason. And you can see the importance of that when you think back to the experience um, in Washington when cap and trade was being debated, when um, opponents of cap and trade, like uh, then Speaker of the House John Boehner from um, from Ohio, stood up and said this would be the biggest tax increase on working Americans in history. And while that may have been political hyperbole, Boehner was right that uh, putting a price on carbon is like a tax increase. And the question is where the money uh, goes. And recycling that money on a fair and transparent basis equally to every um, every individual in the country is uh, one possible answer to the question of where the money goes. That's the carbon dividend answer. So politically, I think that's important for the sustainability of a serious Um, carbon pricing policy. Um, You need to um, anticipate and protect against the backlash that would otherwise occur in the face of rising fossil fuel prices. There's also a philosophical reason, I would say, for, for carbon dividends as the answer to where the money should go. And that rests on the premise that the gifts of nature, or what some would call the gifts of creation, uh, including the limited capacity of the atmosphere to safely absorb our emissions of carbon, those gifts belong to each and every one of us in common and equal measure. They don't belong to governments. They don't belong to corporations either. Under the old cap-and-trade proposals, which would have given away permits for free to fossil fuel corporations, in effect, it was saying, well, you guys own the sky. The prices will go up as people pay, in effect, to put carbon into the sky, and you'll get to keep the money because you got the permits for free. Um, What carbon dividends uh, uh, presupposes is that um, the sky doesn't belong to the corporations. It doesn't belong to the government. It belongs to the people, to each and every one of us. And we want to protect our environment by limiting uh, its use as a sink for dumping carbon. And we want to, uh, therefore, limit that use and charge money for it rather than it being free. And we want the money to go back to the people as its rightful owners. Who would manage this carbon dividend uh, concept, and how would that work? Well, um, it's not a terribly difficult uh, thing to achieve. Um, So if you want to see an example of how uh, dividends could be managed, go to the website of something called the Alaska Permanent Fund. Back in the 1980s, um, under uh, Governor Hammond, a Republican governor, Alaska uh, introduced uh, uh, dividends 
paid annually to every woman, man, and child in the state of Alaska uh, from uh, oil revenues, from royalties levied on the extraction of oil uh, on Alaska's North Slope. And the idea, Hammond's idea, was that the oil belongs to all Alaskans and the money should go straight into their pockets. Um, You go online, if you're a resident of Alaska, you provide evidence uh, that you are, you fill out a form, a PDF form, it's a page or two, um, and then you get uh, payments uh, from the Alaska Permanent Fund. The annual payments have been as much as $2,000 per person per year. Um, And the payments are usually uh, done via electronic transfers. That's the way most recurrent payments to individuals are now handled in our society. But for people who don't have uh, bank accounts, uh, they can get uh, the proverbial check in the mail. And this is how carbon dividends would work as well. Uh, Everybody... uh, uh, probably the way it, the legislation would be written, it, at least the existing bills have been written. Everybody with a social security number can sign up uh, online uh, to receive their dividends. And um, the Treasury Department, which collects the money from selling the permits to allow uh, fossil fuels into the economy, um, then redistributes that money uh, electronically or, again, through checks in the mail for those who don't have a bank account. And, and how would this interface with international efforts? Uh, what, is, do you, do you uh, conceive great, of an yeah, international great, scheme? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, climate change uh, and carbon emissions are, of course, an international problem. And one of the great stumbling blocks to dealing with the problem has been the need for uh, concerted action by all the nations of the world. Um, And so uh, if one had a policy like this in the United States, or for that matter, in any other country, one of the concerns that would be likely to be raised, uh, particularly by businesses, would be that, well, this is going to increase the prices of fossil fuels in our country, and it's going to make um, the cost of producing things uh, higher, especially in fossil fuel intensive uh, sectors of the economy, like um, cement manufacturing, for example. So um, all of the bills that have been uh, proposed uh, in Washington, as far as I know, have... um, measures in them for what are called uh, border uh, adjustment policies. And what that means is that uh, for um, imports coming into the country from countries that don't have a comparable set of carbon policies, there would be a tariff levied that would level the playing field so that our domestic producers would not be at a disadvantage vis-a-vis those uh, competitors abroad. And similarly for exports uh, from the United States, uh, there would be a rebate uh, uh, to level the playing field so that they wouldn't be at a disadvantage in selling their their products abroad. Now, in reality, um, it's a relatively small subset of the economy for which this is a serious issue. Um, In general, fossil fuels are not a uh, really huge component of the cost of uh, manufacturing things. Um, but in some, uh, some things, uh, like cement it is, and in those cases, 
you would have these uh, these protections in place. Now, I would uh, anticipate um, that if and when uh, the United States or any other country adopts a serious uh, carbon dividend policy of the type that I've outlined, um, other countries would see this. They would watch it. Uh, and they would realize that, hey, um, here's a policy that's allowing a country to cut its emissions uh, steeply uh, and consistently over time and to do so in a way that protects the incomes of uh, the average person, protects the incomes of working families, and indeed raises incomes for everyone whose carbon footprint is smaller than average because uh, the amount one gets back as a dividend is, of course, based on the average use of carbon. And um, in, the, in the United States, as in every country, most people use below average amounts of carbon because the average is pulled up by those at the very top of the income and expenditure ladder who have outsized carbon footprints flying around in airplanes on vacations and having multiple homes and driving, uh, you know, big gas guzzling vehicles, you name it, right? Um, and so um, the for most people, they would actually end up with more money in their pockets after the policy was put into effect than before. And I think the popularity of such a policy would be tremendous, uh, just like the Alaska Permanent Fund is very popular in Alaska, as I understand it, across the political spectrum. Republicans, Democrats, independents, a lot of people like the idea that the natural resources belong to them and that they get paid uh, for their use, paid in a way that's fair and transparent um, and equal. And uh, I think the same uh, lesson would quickly uh, register on other countries looking at the United States in, if we had such a policy, in which case they would adopt one too. Um, and it, this might be a way to get around that problem of international cooperation. Rather than waiting for an international agreement on how much I'm going to cut, how much you're going to cut, etc., um, let uh, leader countries, countries capable of exercising leadership, go first and adopt policies that are so attractive for the majority of the people, improving their environment and um, and improving their economic well-being, that it, it becomes almost a no-brainer to, to follow the leader and do the same thing. Well, it's it's ingenious the way you lay it out. And, and I, I think one of the really attractive elements of this, Jim, is that for the average consumer of energy, you're saying the less one consumed, the more one conserved, for instance, turning up the thermostat in the summer or down in the winter, uh, one would get more money as a consequence. It would be incentives for good behavior. The problem, though, it seems to me, it takes us back to where you started in your, your brilliant description of this, is those who would be paying more would be the most powerful interests in all of our societies. How do, how do we get around that political problem? That seems to be a bipartisan objection to this, right? The way- yeah, well, <laughs> that reminds me That reminds me of a conversation I had back in, in 2009, Jeremy. There, it was when uh, some of the cap-and-trade legislation was being debated in Washington and and I was on a, a conference call with um, some um, environmental uh, 
policy advocates, including some inside the beltway types from Washington. And uh, some people on the most, uh, many of the people on the call were backing the the legislation of that time. It was called the Waxman-Markey bill in, in the House, uh, and it had passed the House on a straight party line vote, you know, Democrats, yes, Republicans, nay. Um, and it was now going to the Senate where it ultimately, in fact, died. Um, and a few of us on the call were instead supporting uh, what uh, we called at the time a cap and dividend bill, which would have, again, had a cap on carbon emissions, but it would have dividended the money back to the people rather than uh, giving away the permits for free to corporations. And um, and the, the people in favor of Waxman-Markey said, well, you know, um, we've got to give the corporations the windfall profits that come from um, free permits because otherwise they're lobbyists, you know, they're powerful people. They'll, they'll oppose the bill and they'll kill it. Um, yep. and I said, well, well, what about the Amer- interests of the American people? And they, they said, well, you don't, they thought, you know, here's this armchair academic up in Massachusetts, you know, so you don't understand here in Washington. It's, it's not what the people want that matters. It's what the lobbyists want. And so I said, well, let us assume a democracy. And they just laughed. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. Let us assume a democracy. But since your podcast, Jeremy, is called um, This is Democracy, um, uh, let me say that that's the answer to your question. The way we get such a policy in place is by actually using our uh, rights and and opportunities that are created by the fact that we live in a democracy and insisting that our uh, representatives in state legislatures or in Congress in Washington um, vote for what I think is basically a common sense policy. It's a policy that protects our environment and uh, protects the economic well-being of the majority of people. So yeah, there will be some powerful people, some uh, very uh, well-to-do people who uh, either are deeply invested in uh, owning uh, shares in, in the fossil fuel industries or um, use so much fossil fuel themselves that, that uh, the dividend they get back is 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 not nearly enough to compensate for the effect of the higher prices because they're big uh they have huge carbon footprints, um, and those people will be unhappy. But you know what? Um, they can afford it. You know, um, the fossil fuel industry has had a good run for its money. They can take their winnings and go home. Um, and they should, if they're smart, they're going to be diversifying out of that dying sector into the clean energy economy of the future already. And in terms of the the rich who have outsized carbon footprints. Um, yeah, maybe their maybe their net incomes, the difference between you know what they spend uh, uh, as a result of higher prices and the dividend they get back, will go down by one percent or two percent. Um, big deal, you know. They can afford it, uh, and so right. I'm personally, I think you're right to point to the political resistance that is likely to be mounted uh, by uh, um, narrow interests for whom their own uh, bottom line is more important than the bottom line of the average American or the bottom line of the planet or the bottom line of future generations. But the answer to that, as always, is for um, the majority to stand up 
and and rule. How can young people in particular get involved in pushing for carbon dividends and further climate reform, especially those who are not traditionally aligned with environmentalists or who consider themselves traditional environmentalists? Well, I'd say, you know, the first step is to uh, to to uh, learn about it, uh, read about it, talk about it, think about it um, and make sure that uh, it makes sense. Uh, I, I think that um, most young people will get it pretty damn quickly because they realize that when we talk about future generations, they're the people we're talking about. This, this, the impacts of climate change are not so distant that they won't, uh, you won't experience it uh, in your own lives. So, understanding uh, the urgency of the problem and coming up with a realistic solution um, is is something that I think a lot of young people are very interested in doing. Um, and most of them haven't heard about carbon dividends. Uh, the reason being that nobody gets rich from carbon dividends. So nobody's nobody's spending a lot of money to, to to make glossy ads about it and push it out there into the public domain. It has to happen through a kind of grassroots, bottom-up movement. So one of the things that young people, I believe, um, can and should do is build such a movement. And there have been efforts to do it. There are various groups out there that are already working on these issues, um, specifically on carbon dividends. Um, Usually, they've been mobilized in support of one particular piece of legislation. There are various uh, legislative proposals that are out there, um, and they differ in, in, uh, in various ways. Um, some I think are better, some not quite as good, but all of them share the basic idea that we need to limit our carbon emissions. We need to, um, charge for the right to bring carbon into the economy, which means of course, bringing it into our atmosphere, uh, and redistribute the money to the people uh, on an equal per person basis. Um, and so among the groups that are out there, um, two, uh, that you may have heard of, are the Citizens Climate Lobby, which uh, backs uh, a bipartisan bill uh, that has a number of Democratic sponsors in the House uh, and uh, at least one Republican co-sponsor as well. Um, And another is the uh, bill that is uh, being unveiled by... um, a group called the Climate Leadership Council, uh, which has uh, a supporting group called uh, uh, Students for Carbon Dividends, one I believe called High Schoolers for Carbon Dividends, that uh, is are aiming to build support for their particular bill. Um, my own view is that um, one at this point should be fairly um, open-minded about the specifics of what each bill will and will not include. Um, I think what will end up happening in in Washington when momentum builds for such a policy will be uh, a process of give and take amongst the proponents of different alternatives, uh, and what emerges will be some sort of compromise that's capable of winning broad-based support. Um, ideally, I think that should be bipartisan support, including uh, a significant number of Republicans as well as Democrats, because at the end of the day, this is a policy that will have to remain in place 
for the years uh, and even two or three decades needed to complete the clean energy transition. It has to be so popular, uh, like um, Social Security and uh, Medicare are, that it can't be reversed uh, when the next election comes or a new party takes control in Washington. So I think bipartisanship will be an important part of formulating a, uh, a politically durable uh, piece of legislation. And I think what, what uh, young people should advocate for is um, legislation that um, embodies the central principles of putting a hard limit on the amount of carbon we let into our economy uh, and thereby on the amount we let into the air and uh, recapturing the money that people pay as a result of that limit through higher prices for fossil fuels and recycling that money to every man, woman, and child equally as dividends. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a general feature of all the different bills uh, that are out there. Um, they differ in some of their details. Um, and uh, let me just mention two details, uh, since I've alluded to these, that I think are of particular concern. One is um, some of the bills put a ceiling on um, how um, high the price of permits can go, and therefore on how much the price of fossil fuels can rise. And personally, I think that's a mistake. I think it makes perfect sense to have a floor to say the prices are going to rise by a certain amount every year um, to give some certainty about that for people making long-run plans, including businesses making investment decisions. It's good for them to know that the prices of fossil fuels are going to keep going up. But a ceiling um, possibly could defeat the goal of uh, really locking in a, an ambitious trajectory for reducing uh, the use of fossil fuels. You need to hang on to that trajectory, even if it pushes up the prices uh, a lot, uh, knowing that uh, if the prices do go up a lot, the dividends will go up a lot as well, and most people will be happy with that. Another, The second detail uh, in the bills, and again, there are differences among them on this point, it has to do with what other policies one has alongside carbon dividends. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I think that carbon dividends are part of the solution. I don't think that it's the only sensible piece of the puzzle that we need to address. I think that uh, it's important also to have a set of complementary policies, including um, regulations, for example, that ensure that we don't have uh, pollution hotspots from burning fossil fuels that uh, disproportionately have poisoned low-income communities uh, and communities of color across the country. Um, I think we need to have public investments in things like um, mass transportation and a smart grid. Uh, and all of these uh, can and should be part of the mix. Some of the bills uh, that are out there, including actually the ones I've mentioned, have tried to put uh, regulations, for example, off the table um, as a way to try to build uh, support for carbon dividend legislation. And my own view is that uh, a serious uh, carbon dividend policy with a cap on emissions would make uh, a number of current regulations redundant, but that's not a reason to uh, forswear 
uh, any regulations whatsoever um, as part of the sensible policy mix. So those are those are the details that anyone who looks into this, as, as students or others look into this, start to read the legislation, start to hear about the different groups, they'll quickly come to realize that there are you know these differences among the proposals that are out there. And and again, to underscore my message, I think you know what's important is what the proposals have in common, and that at this stage yes. we should build support for the general idea without necessarily um, becoming so zealous in backing one proposal or another that we uh, that we think that's the only right way to go about it. And and I think that's such a powerful message to close on because one of the topics we've come back to time and again in our podcast over more than 100 episodes uh, is the challenge of bringing the interests of the public and the, the wishes of the public uh, into into positions of actually making policy, that too much of policy in our democracy and in many democracies uh, is not made in the interest of the public nor by the public. And what you've outlined is actually a strategy that's been advocated and and proven to succeed in areas such as civil rights, for example, uh, where large numbers of citizens need to organize, need to come together around a, a simple and common message and there will be differences on details, but it's the organization and the mobilization of grassroots groups, as you said, uh, to raise awareness and to uh, get people, get citizens, ordinary citizens of all kinds to vote and allocate their resources for the pursuit of these important changes uh, in our society. Grassroots change and organization. This is what A. Philip Randolph more than 100 years ago said is the basis for, for political change. Uh, Zachary. You're part of this process that Jim has laid out so well. Uh, you're part of a group called uh, Students for Climate Change, I believe, right? Students for Cla- Carbon Dividends, right? Students for Car- yeah. T- Tell us about your group and, and maybe close us out with your thoughts on, on how Jim's really thoughtful research and analysis is being put into play by, by Students for uh, Carbon Dividends and other groups. Well, I would just say that um, there are a lot of groups out there that are doing really important work on these issues, and I'm a part of one of them. But I want to touch more on the overall issue. And I think what makes carbon dividends so powerful a solution and something that we can all come together on to try and solve this climate crisis that we're already in the midst of is that it's it's such a creative plan that it's both libertarian and socialist at the same time. And it makes it, it makes it so appealing to young people who are looking for these creative, interesting solutions. And so I would just encourage young people like myself to get involved in these issues and start doing research on not, not only the details of the policy, but also this idea that the climate belongs to all of us and not just to corporations or to the government, but that everyone has a stake in the environment and in the environmental future of our country. That's fantastic. Uh, Jim, as we close out, and, and thank you for your analysis, uh, are you optimistic? Um, I would say I'm uh, uh, cautiously optimistic. Yes, I am. I really think that uh, we are potentially on the verge of some big changes in this country. Uh, we can see it around us every day. And um, I think um, those big changes in the next few years uh, could and I hope will include a serious policy to address uh, climate change and the clean energy transition. And um, and I think the way we're going to get it, as you've said, is through the public demanding it. That's the way we got Social Security. It wasn't just that somebody in Washington said, oh, wouldn't this be a nice idea? No, it was that the public organized, educated themselves, 
and demanded it, made the their representatives in Washington act. And I think I think that's exactly the path we'll need to take with uh, with uh, climate policy. Um, and I suppose let me close with with a, a, a unabashed uh, plug uh, for for my recent book, The Case for Carbon Dividends, for people who do want to learn more about it and um, and understand the basic ideas. Um, I think I tried to write that in a way that's really accessible. Um, I had high school students and college students in mind as potential readers of the book. Um, and uh, it's selling for, um, I think, something like uh, 10 bucks or 12 bucks. Uh, so um, I, um, I'd encourage anyone who, who's interested to take a look uh, and check it out. Yes. I, I would second that. I, I think, uh, Jim, what you've done is is what uh, democracy activists and scholars, and, and we're one and the same, right, uh, what we do uh, at our best, and, and you, you model the best of this, which is uh, bringing serious research and years of thought to bear on a very difficult, complex problem, but bringing that thought and research together in a way that's practical, accessible, and that that shows a clear a clear pathway forward, and and I think uh, your book and and your larger corpus of writings are, are inspirational, and also uh, they help to really put these ideas into action. They're about ideas and implementation. Thank you for those kind words, Jeremy, and and uh, and you know I just say we all need to we all need to be uh, doing what we can. We all need to be part of the solution. That's right. Thank, thank you, Jim. Zachary, thank you for your work, for your insights. And thank you, of course, to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.